Turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Before I begin a sermon on thankfulness, David and I wanted to give thanks to the church for praying for us. We, we actually, I don't know if you knew this, we went to India and we're back. We're safe. We made it. Um, it, was, it was an amazing time. We went to Hyderabad, India. It was a joy to see David and his presidential role with Word Partners. He represents Christ with fullness of heart in the organization very well. It was neat to see him in his work. And we came to help a, a training. There was about 30 pastors from India, uh, part of this training that Word Partners is sponsoring. And to see their love for each other, their knowledge of God's word, their commitment to read it and preach it faithfully in a very hostile situation, my cup overflowed. I'm just sitting there. I was abounding. I was like, Lord, please give me some of this. May this grab a hold of me. It was, it was really profound. <clears throat> and when you think of India, you got to, it's, it's like four or five times as big as America and a smaller landmass. Um, they have more unreached people groups, and they have the most unreached people groups in the world in India. And so we're just praying for these pastors. Uh, the needs are just numerous. So, yeah, if, if the Lord puts it on your heart later today, just say, Lord, use, these three, use those 30 pastors for your glory. So let me, let me pray for it. Let me just pray that for now. Father, we thank you for the trip that we were able to have to go be part of the training of pastors in India. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to use them, even uh, as they are being launched into various other ministries and churches, we pray you would uh, use what the training just to continue to equip them and use them for good works around the country. Pray, Lord, that their efforts would be multiplied a uh, hundredfold, Lord. Please raise up more and more believers in India to preach Christ. And we pray for their numbers as they go into unreached areas, Lord. May they see fruit Give them faithfulness through such hostility, Lord. So we do pray this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we're turning now to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's, uh, and if you're using the Bible in the chair rack in front of you, it's page 283. We're going to continue our series in Samuel and last... Next week's going to be the last sermon, so we're at the end of Samuel. I'm just going to read the first six verses of 2 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 1 through 6. Let's hear God's word as I read God's word. David spoke the words of this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from the grasp of all his enemies from the grasp of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. You saved me from violence. I called the Lord who is worthy of praise and I was saved from my enemies. For the ways of death engulfed me 
the torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Thanks be to God. If you remember, 1 Samuel opened with a song of praise. And here we are at the end of 2 Samuel, closing with a song of praise. Hannah's prayer and praise was our journey into the story of kingship. And now David, as his reign is ending, it's closing with praise. As you look at the chapter, you'll see it's formatted like a poem, a song. And that's what we're learning. We're being reminded of God's praise and worship. So now in between the opening song and praise with Hannah to now David's closing the book with his praise, the book's closing with his praise, think of everything that we've known in between, surrounded by worship. So about 150 years have happened in First and Second Samuel. And the main characters you might be familiar with of Hannah and Samuel and Saul and David. And yet these pillars here of these prayer songs, they're not so much about the characters. They're now putting forward who's the main actor in Samuel. That's what these songs are reading. They're praising God who has been the main actor in all these stories that we've been learning. So Hannah's prayer and David's prayer give us the theology of Samuel, the doxology of Samuel, the real crescendo of where it's going to worship God. And this is a reminder that for David, as David's writing this prayer, who does he see as the hero of his story himself? No. He's drawn attention to God. God is the hero of his life, the hero of our lives, the hero of the whole story. Verse one is the context. David spoke the words of this song to the Lord. And what was it about? It was about the Lord. It was about how the Lord rescued him from the grasp of all his enemies. David wrote this song. He's thanking God for saving him. It's David's testimony. You know, imagine as he's writing these words, right? He's, he's penning this song. It's like it dawns on him. Ah, I knew when that rock left my sling, it wasn't just luck. <laughs> God actually gave me the rescue over Goliath. I mean, he, he's writing this song. He's just thanking God time, all the stories. He's looking at the whole narrative as God rescued him. God did this. That's what he's drawn attention to. I didn't do this. God saved me. You did it, God. Praise you. You rescued me all along. And David described uh, his enemies in verse 5 and 6 as waves of, waves of death that engulf me, floods of destruction, cords of the grave coiled around me. I mean, intense, vivid descriptions. Uh, like his enemies were energized by death. They were, they were out to kill me. That's what he's saying. They were out to destroy me. Like a flood, like raging water. But the Lord heard my cry. This is David's story. 
Huh? He starts with a metaphor of God. God is my rock. It's, it's kind of the main theme, I, get, I think, that runs throughout because we see it in verse 2. Lord is my rock. And then if you just look down, verse 32, David will say, For who is a God besides the Lord? And how is a rock? And how is a only our God? Um, and then verse 47, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. One of the pastors we met in India told me his story. He was born in a Hindu family in a small village. The gods they worshipped were snakes. Uh, It's a fairly pragmatic god when you live in the village and your worst enemy are poisonous snakes. So they figured if we worship snakes, maybe we'll appease our enemies. So that's what functionally they were about. But this false worship came to a happy ending with his father. When he was about 12 years old, his dad heard about the living God, revealed himself in Christ, and became a Christian. The dad learned of Christ, started following Christ, but this did not go over well with the village priests and temple. And they kept threatening the dad. Almost in one night, the dad realized, we've got to flee. So this dad left everything they owned, their animals, the farm they cultivated, their house, and he took about $20 with him, and they fled. This pastor I'm talking to was only 12 at the time. Well, three years go by, and he's, he's still really mad about this. They're in worse living conditions than they were before. He had fond memories of that village, of uh, land cultivated that they worked on, animals, the house, And he told his parents, I'm going back to the village. I'm going back to where we were. His parents just started praying for him. And the day this 15-year-old boy was going to return to the village, the pastor I'm talking to, the day he was going to return, God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. He turned to Christ as his Lord and Savior and was baptized. His dad renamed him Ebenezer, Ebenezer, and praise the God. Remember the word Ebenezer is from 1 Samuel 7. It means stone of help. After defeating the Philistines, Samuel raises his Ebenezer, declaring that on the spot, God defeated their enemy. That's what this father was declaring with the son, Ebenezer. Like Samuel and David, that family discovered that God is their rock. He's our only fortress and deliverer in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. We really can't say enough about how thankful we are to God for saving us. We, when you look at these first words, David can't express enough, fast enough, use enough words to express how overflowing he is in praising God for saving him. Is this your story? Is this your song? Praising your Savior all the day long? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Oh, beautiful. That's what David's doing here. His his heart is just opening up, just thank you, God, thank you, God, for saving me. Uh, We have this uh, 
chapter twice in our Bibles. This is uh, also Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a retelling of this chapter. And it begins in Psalm 18. This is added to it. He wrote this at the beginning of Psalm 18, at the beginning of this uh, song. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. That's what David's doing here. David loves God. He, he knows God. This song is a monument, a story to the Lord. He, and he wants everyone to know, God is the real hero of my life. That's what David's doing. He, God's the real focus here. And he's our hero, too. If you're a Christian, all, all of David's repetition, you know, my God, my rock, my Savior, my fortress, my deliverer, my, my, my. It's not, he's not being selfish. He's not being self-centered. What he's really saying here, without the Lord, I'd be dead. My whole very existence is him. That's what he's, he's just saying. The Lord is everything to me. That's what he's writing about. The Lord is my delight. Without him, I would not be rescued. That's what he's declaring. He's just so drawn attention to that. And he wants us to sing with him. We're being invited to sing this song as well. And maybe you heard the refrain with the word rock. How about this refrain? God, our rock, is worthy of praise. So seek refuge in him. God, our rock, is worthy of praise. So give him glory. So I broke this song into three stanzas. So God, our rock, is worthy of praise. For one, he is mighty to save. Two, for he is righteous and he gives us strength. And three, for he is steadfast in love. Let's look at this first stanza. For God, our rock, is worthy of praise. For he is mighty to save. We're going to look at verse 7 through 20. In verse 18, David admits his enemies were too strong for him. He was outmatched. David experienced such overwhelming odds as soon as we meet him in 1 Samuel. Yet he's realizing God was with me the whole time. The times when David fled the grasp of Saul, he sought refuge in a mountainside, in caves, in a rock. That's how he sees God. His experience is that God was my rock. Notice how he viewed the rock as metaphorically as like, actually, you know who really saved me? What cave really saved me? It was the Lord. He's, trying to, he's just seeing right through it to God Almighty. He's just seeing spiritual eyes to see the world he lives in. Like the German reformer Martin Luther will much later sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And more than just a strong fortress, he's, he's seeing God as like his deliverer, the one who rescued him. That, that's what David's singing to Yahweh. He's declaring, he uses the expression, the horn of my salvation, which we also see in Hannah's song. Matter of fact, a lot of Hannah's phrases are repeated in David's song. And in Hannah's song, that was before David was born. And in David's song, Hannah is long gone. So the most consistent reality between the two songs is the Lord. He's the one who's fulfilling his story. He's the one fulfilling these promises. And, that, and look at, look at um, let me read verse 7 to 20. 
And when you think about that, they both are singing the horn of my salvation. So think of horn, another metaphor, like an animal's horn. It's powerful, like a water buffalo. You know, it defends its young with the horns. It can take on lions, rip them apart with their horns. That's how he's viewing salvation is God fought for me. God's powerful. He defended me. That's, that's what these metaphors are doing. They're, they're signaling like, God, you saved me. So listen to how God saved him in verse 7 to 20. I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry for help reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils, and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens and came down, total darkness beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on wings of the wind. He made darkness a a canopy around him, a gathering of water in thick clouds. From the radiance of his presence, blazing coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, that's a lot of words to say, the Lord saved me. (laughs) And David's not exaggerating. This isn't just poetic license. He really believes this is what happened to him. Think about this. In only a few instances in 1 and 2 Samuel, do you even remember God thundering or the earth shaking to save them from the Philistines? It's just a few instances. You cannot grab a hold of all this in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Like, okay, how did David know God was doing this for him? How, how, did, how did he, where did he get this language to describe the Lord's salvation for him? Well, one, one commentator helped me, helped me kind of think about this. I mean, imagine him sitting in a cave. What is he thinking about? He's pondering the story of the Exodus. Did you see it in that? All the language. He's, he's being reminded of something he's known from a young child. He's being reminded of the story of God's rescue of his people Israel from slavery in Egypt through mighty, miraculous works. And there's a lot of indications in here that he views that as his salvation too. Like, for example, in verse 17, the phrase... God pulled me out of deep water is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's when uh, Pharaoh's daughter pulled Moses up out of the water. 
That's what the verb means, to draw out, to pull up. It sounds like the word Moses. Moses, that's what, it, that's what word he's using here. When God rescued and used Moses to rescue the people of Israel from their enemy of Pharaoh. In verse 16, it, it reads like the language of parting the Red Sea, that the ground was exposed, the land was exposed in the valley of the water at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. We know the parting of the Red Sea through the wind. Uh, the smoke, consuming fire, total darkness, thunder from heaven were all present in Mount Sinai. In verse 20, he brought me to a broad place, a spacious place, a, really indicating a place of freedom and rest and salvation like Israel was brought. So David prayed confidently. He's praying confidently that God is his savior of his people. And think about it. The pattern of salvation that we see in the story of Exodus is a promise. David, David's seeing this is a promise for his own salvation. How is David able to connect himself to the story of Exodus? Well, in the story of Exodus 2, when the people cried out in distress, like we see David doing in verse 7, it says God heard their prayer. God heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant, covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God went to rescue Israel out of slavery. And so here David's praying, and God went to rescue people out of Israel after Abraham, after Isaac, after Jacob, it was the promise that drove it. They weren't, they weren't there in slavery in Egypt. God came to rescue them because of his promise to Abraham. And David is seeing himself as part of this covenantal relationship with the Lord that he will save his people. He will save his people. This is how David views himself. God will hear my prayer. He's made a promise to save us. He's going to rescue us. That's how I'm seeing myself. And he says, God heard me from his temple. David is writing before the temple was built. He's talking about my prayers went all the way to that heavenly temple. And God ripped heaven open. He's charging to rescue me. He's going to save me. That's how David is envisioning his salvation coming from above. God shakes heaven and earth to save his chosen king. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the chosen anointed. God put him in his place. And God made an everlasting covenant that was with Abraham, with David. And that's why God was so angry at his enemies. I mean, imagine an earthly father jumping out of his seat to rescue his son, who is just about to experience extreme danger. In fact, if the dad didn't move, you'd wonder, is that his son? Is, is he moved by his son? Does he love his son? So out of God's love and commitment to us, he was angry, and he came to rescue us. He will intervene for you. If you're one of God's people, there's a promise here. God will intervene. God will act. He's mighty to save. And God is ultimately angry over sin, death, and the devil. He was moved 
to go and rescue, pull him out of the water. And this is, this is just what Hannah prayed in, uh, for Samuel too. When, they, when she said, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. That's what David experienced in his song. In verse five and six, he's saying, I'm trapped in, the, in these cords in the grave. In verse 17, God raised me up out of the many waters. David's experience would be just a shadow of the experience of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the King, Jesus experienced the flood and death on the cross, but God delivered him. Jesus was overwhelmed by death, but God raised him up to new life. David could say in verse 20 that God did this because he delighted in him. How much more so for Jesus, for all those who are in Jesus. When Jesus was baptized in the gospel, symbolically going into the baptism of the cross, identifying with sin and joining himself to, the, to sinners and being raised up to new life, from heaven we hear, this is my beloved son in whom is all my delight. That's what is true for us and true for Christ. If you're in Christ, God delights in you and he is mighty to save, mighty to save. So this is our first stanza. He's just praising God for being mighty to save. He's got a lot of powerful language to move our hearts to this. Second, we sing, God is our rock who's worthy of praise, for he is righteous and gives us strength. Verse 21 to 46. Listen to just 21 to 25. Let me read these few verses. The Lord re rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him and kept myself from iniquity. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, I've titled this second point, God is righteous and gives us strength. But David here is, in fact, he's the one claiming righteousness. Uh, now, if you're reading straight through Samuel, you're a little troubled at this, because we just read chapters 11 through 20, both of David's sin and all the consequences of sin. So how? How is he able to claim righteousness here? And we certainly can see some of David's righteous acts. Um, think of different stories. He, he acted in faith against Goliath. He suffered innocently from Saul, and he didn't take revenge when he had the opportunity. Um, and God said as much about David in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. This is what God said about David. So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Yet, like I said, after reading chapters 11 through 20, it just seems like, is David aware that we all know he's a sinner? You, you, you can't hide this. So is David hiding his sin? Is David maybe not paying attention to his failures? 
I, I don't think so. For one, remember David made his sin very public. He wrote Psalm 51. All of Israel knows his confession. And where he says, I have done evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's not hiding anything. He's already written that. And he himself have said that. In another psalm, he says, no one is righteous. So David is not claiming moral perfection. And so I think we just need to think through, what, is, what does he mean by righteousness? And two points, I think, are really helpful here. One is, you see in the text, in verse 22, when he says, I have not turned from my God to wickedness. So one area that David is claiming, and we have seen this consistently in his life and consistently in the Psalms, is he, he worships Yahweh. I mean, he's, he's a believer. He's been faithful to the Lord. He has not wavered in faith uh, from Yahweh. He hasn't gotten into worshiping false gods and idols. So one way to think of righteousness is fidelity to the Lord. But another one, too, is when he was confronted, his repentance was genuine. His repentance was before the Lord. So he had a right standing before God. And look down in verse 31 and 33. I want to point out one more thing. Uh, <clears throat> let me read these verses. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. So here, God's perfect. His word's pure. And God's a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God beside the Lord and who is a rock? Only our God. God is my strong refuge. Look at verse 33. He makes my way perfect. Or the ESV says, he makes my way blameless. So David is not claiming more perfection. He's claiming he's in a right state with God, and God is the one indicating that verse. He's made me blameless. He's made me righteous. He's done this. Remember David's prayer. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be whiter than snow. So in this song, it's, it's not, he's not hiding anything. He's just believing what God's already declared about him. He, I think that's more shocking to us, that he actually believes it, that he actually is going to live it out, that he is forgiven, that he is moving forward. I mean, were we wanting him to be always defined by his sin and failure? Were we just expecting that that's what should mark him all those days that he's got included in every song? Oh, yeah, and by the way, I've failed miserably, and this is everything I've done. Does he have to keep saying it? Notice he's able to embrace God's forgiveness and praise the Lord. Like he said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronted David, this is, what the, this is what David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said this to David, the Lord has put away your sin. David's believing it. David's believing the proclamation of the gospel that he is forgiven and he's blameless. If David was in one of our churches I think we'd really have our time if he wrote this song. I mean, he abused his power, forced a married woman to sleep with him, had her husband killed, 
And that wasn't all. And after that, could you, could you move on from identifying this with him? Would you marry? Would you marry them? Would you marry him and Bathsheba? And then would you expect their son to be the next pastor in your church? I mean, this is like, this is radical grace of God and mercy working, his providential plan. But the New Testament makes this abundantly clear. Believers are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the Spirit, we're going to grow to walk more and more in paths of righteousness. David was a, a great warrior. So when he's claiming righteousness here, he sees this as he's confessed everything. He's honest before the Lord. But he also, notice also uh, mentioned in the second point, and gives us strength. What you also see in the rest of the song is he's giving credit for God for all the victories. God, you gave me strength. You're the one that strengthened me. You're the one that made me this. He's drawing attention to God. So God not only cleansed David of his sin, but he also equipped David. He also gave him strength. He also used David. David was still God's king. David was still to serve the Lord. God wasn't done with David. God rescues him and then gives him strength to live for him. So uniquely for David, he was saved to fight for God, to serve God, to crush God's enemies. God was going to bring in his kingdom through the king that he would um, supply all the strength that was needed. You see this in verse uh, 40, just one example. David says this, you have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. He's drawing attention, God did it all. Even though David may have been in the front lines, David was a good fighter and all that, but he's saying, God, you did it. You strengthened me. You, you brought this victory. Oh, glory to you. That's what you see throughout this song. And remember, Saul was so jealous if anyone sung about anyone else but him. King Saul, oh, they would sing songs about David or whoever. He's just raving mad. I'm going to kill that guy. David is on the other end. He's singing to the Lord, giving God credit, drawing attention to the Lord, because this is what's in his heart, is that the Lord would be glorified. And he says in verse 44, he's really, it, it seems like he's getting a, kind of ahead of himself. He says, through him, he's going to be the head of the nations. Uh, John Woodhouse, one commentator, uh, reminds us that at the time of David, he was only ruling a very small Middle Eastern empire. So it seems like he's getting a little carried away here saying, I'm going to be the head of the nations. Is this just you know, hyperboles and just exaggerating? No, actually, David really believed something about the office he was given. He's seeing beyond himself. He's seeing that God is going to bring kingdom through his king. That's what David's able to grasp. He's starting to see this now because it's going to be through David and his descendants. 
The implication is that David knew God was a rightful king beyond even his time. Beyond him. He's already getting a hint, I think, at something to come. This king to come, the authority of God's enemies will be given to, not to David, but to a greater David, God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will crush them completely. As English uh, hymn writer Isaac Watts sang in 1781, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Jesus is God's perfect king, the sinless son of God. He's the one who's defeated our enemies. And he's the one who credits us with his righteousness. He's the one who the Father delights in. So how will you write your song of thanksgiving? What will be your testimony? Will you be so bold to embrace the truth of Christ's victory over you? Will you announce your forgiveness and embrace your justification, your righteousness in light of who what Christ has done? Do you rejoice in your union with Jesus? Do you, do, you, do, do, you, do you hold back seeing yourself in Christ, that God delights in you and has, considers you as righteous as Christ is righteous? Is that part of your thanksgiving in your psalm? These are good words for us, and we see that David's doing this, and therefore... Through Christ, we can too. So we sing to God who is worthy of praise for he is mighty to save. We sing to God who is worthy of praise for he is righteous and he gives us strength. And third, we sing to God our rock who is worthy of praise for he is steadfast in love. Look at the last two verses of this song. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord, I will sing praises about your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. The whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel can really be summed up with these simple words. God will save his people through his anointed king. That's First and Second Samuel. God will save his people through his anointed king. And David's singing it. David's singing about it. At the end of the story, he's rejoicing that. In verse 51, he, he uses a word you've heard before, chesed. It's the Hebrew word for loyal love or steadfast love, his faithful love. It occurs about 250 times in the Old Testament. Um, it often shows up in profound places, the word chesed. For example, in, in Exodus. So after the people enter into gross idolatry, when they melted gold and formed idolatrous worship of a calf, through the Lord's mercy and repentance, he passed before Moses, and God proclaimed this. After that story, God proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, sowed anger, abounding in steadfast love. You see, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases even when his people rebel against him. 
God will bring his king. God will bring his savior. God is our rock. Because of this covenant-keeping love is for his anointed. The word anointed means Messiah. David was Israel's Messiah at the time. He wasn't the Messiah we ultimately need, though. We need a greater descendant of David, not merely human, but one who comes as a Davidic Messiah who is fully human and fully God, the one through whom Yahweh will both judge and bless the world. In Samuel, we learn there is a great need for a king. We should all feel that in reading the books of Samuel. We need a king who will defeat our enemies. We need a king who is righteous. We need a king who will lead us in paths of righteousness. We need a king who is steadfast in love. We're coming to the end of David's reign. He was God's chosen king. After David's death, Israel will hope for another one like him. But as you read ahead, the kingdom's going to be divided. They're going to lose hope. They're going to be disillusionments going to set in. And it just prepares a way for a greater king, a greater son of David, the son of God. Jesus will have complete victory over all of God's enemies, namely sin, the devil, death. Jesus Christ did this through his own perfect life and death and resurrection. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to remove the penalty of sin and the power of sin and ultimately even the presence of sin. Jesus came to defeat death through his resurrection. Jesus is the king we need. Jesus is our Lord. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, he says. I will praise you, for you are mighty to save. You are righteous. You give generously, and you are steadfast in love. All glory be to God. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the good news and the praise of this song. We're being invited to sing it. Lord, we are, and may we be renewed in that, Lord, today. May we sing this song, Lord, as we think about your great salvation, a salvation that we couldn't do ourselves. We were outmatched by our enemies. They were destroying us, but you can raise us up. A Savior has come, Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord. Give us thankful hearts, we pray in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Corey uh, Timboom, you may remember, was one of the families that was involved in World War II in rescuing Jews who were fighting their enemies. Um, they opened up their home. They wanted to be a place of shelter. It was a great sacrifice to her family. She's the only one in her family who has told the story. Today, their house is a memorial in Netherlands. They call it the hiding place because it provided safety from those fleeing. Colossians 3 declares, for you have died, talking about a Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ offers himself to us as our hiding place from our enemy. This comes as a free gift to us but it cost him dearly. There's a universal need to find a place of refuge, 
to find a safe place when you're in danger. When you're overwhelmed and outmatched, Satan is a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Sin is crouching behind the door, ready to prevail. Death is too powerful for us to win against. Our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. He alone defeated all our enemies. And this is what we celebrate in communion. This is what we remember. He willingly took our place for us on the cross and rose again victoriously. David wrote, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He appropriated all those attributes of God for him personally. This communion is for believers. Christians believe that Jesus truly lived, died, and rose again. And we appropriate these historical realities personally. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we believe that Jesus died for our sins, my sins. We believe that he was raised for my justification, our justification. We believe that he'll return as our king, my Lord, the Lord of lords and king of kings. So if you do not yet believe this, we encourage you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper until you personally come to faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The bread and the cup. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' perfect body and life that was broken for us. And the cup is a sign of Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. As you hold these elements, let Jesus speak to you and convince you of his love for you, convince you of his steadfast faithfulness to you. He died for you. He rose for you. He will come again for you. His love is now present with us, for us. It's steadfast, unmovable, trustworthy, secure. So let's take the bread together. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together with thankfulness to Jesus. Likewise, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup and drink together with thankfulness for what Jesus has done. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of your victory over all our enemies. Thank you for our salvation. Give us thankful hearts. Lord, we want to proclaim this until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.